I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is New York Times bestselling author Terry Cheney. Her new book is Modern Madness, an Owner's Manual. COVID-19 has launched a second pandemic, a mental health crisis in America. Since the lockdown started, calls to suicide prevention hotlines have gone up 1,000%. In a recent Census Bureau questionnaire, over one-third of U.S. adults self-identified as clinically anxious or depressed, and experts have predicted that 75,000 additional deaths may be caused by coronavirus despair. Using the familiar framework of an owner's manual, Terry Cheney brilliantly imposes order on a frightening and forbidding topic. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling, uh, bestselling Manic, a Memoir. Her writing has also been featured in the New York Times, L.A. Times, HuffPost, NPR, Psychology Today, and many more popular blogs and countless articles. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Terry. Well, thank you, Catherine. I appreciate being here. Well, given what I said at the beginning of my introduction um, and the title of your book, Modern Madness, and it's a manual, an owner's manual. Um, I think we need an owner's manual today to help mitigate the despair and the depression and the anxiety and even suicidal behavior that's been caused by the coronavirus. So maybe first question is, how can in, how does your book help us to do that? How will your manual help us to do that? Well, I think it makes the topic of mental illness, which is rather frightening and complicated to many people, I think it makes it more accessible. I use my own personal stories. I have bipolar disorder, and I talk about what it's like to experience that, what it looks like, what we can do about mental health. And I try to put it in a, in a framework that people are familiar with, like troubleshooting, maintenance, warranties. So these various sections, I think, break down the, the rather complex topic into a more accessible uh, format. You know, you just said you have bipolar disorder, and I think I had one read yeah. one of the interviews or articles about you, and you you said to uh, the person you were talking to, you don't usually say, I have bipolar disorder, but I am bipolar, so it's more of I identify as being bipolar, not that's that that's all you are, are who you are, but you are, I am bipolar, so you kind of said it differently, I was, today. Um, well, I... I say it both ways, actually. I think it is an illness that I have, but it also really informed so much of my life. I mean, it is the way my brain looks at the world is very bipolar. So uh, although it's not all that I am, it is a very big part of how I see the world, how I interact with people, um, and how I feel about myself. When were you first diagnosed? I don't know if diagnosed maybe isn't the question I want to ask. When did, when did you feel that perhaps you had, you know, these, these feelings that you have of depression and uh, the feelings associated with bipolar, when were you able to recognize them in yourself? I think I knew even as a child that I was bipolar because I had, I would have long periods of having to stay in bed and miss school and that would be followed by these incredibly productive and um, 
high-functioning periods where I went on to make straight A's and I was a cheerleader and a valedictorian of my high school. So um, I always had this outside uh, facade that I maintained, but inside I knew there was something different about me because I would um, get so low. You know, I, I think people do understand more, unfortunately, these days about what depression feels like. And even as a child, I would feel that way. As a, we don't like to see our children as, as a parent, I should say, and uh, as a yeah. grandparent, actually. Yeah, you don't want to see your kids upset or depressed. And I think sometimes parents try to kind of uh, maybe just push it aside and, and don't want to recognize it in their own ch- children. What about your parents? How did they view you? Well, I think, did you feel... And, and yeah. this is... Sure. I think this is not to criticize my parents because I think they love me very much, but my parents and my teachers, I thought, were, were really fooled by that outer uh, appearance and all the awards and honors and things. It's easy to think you've got... Uh, a child who's well and functioning highly in the world, but, um, you know, put aside the fact that, well, they're isolating a lot and they're not sleeping well and, you know, because the two things just didn't seem to go together. So I, and mental health was not discussed as much when I was a child. Certainly uh, there was not the attention to it that there is today. So thank God that we're beginning to recognize it in children because it really is a problem. Well, I think when in recognizing in children, especially with parents, and you begin to, it's difficult because parents then blame themselves. Well, it's my fault. There must be something I'm Correct. doing or not doing that's causing the, my kid to be depressed. Um, and you do, you, the stigma is less, but we the, there still is that stigma about talking about mental illness as opposed to physical illness, which we accept much more readily. Um, we still haven't yeah, sort of crawled out of that. I, yeah. I just don't understand that. It's something that's mystified me all my life because bipolar disorder in particular is a brain disorder. It's in your brain, and the brain is just a three-and-a-half-pound organ like any other organ in the body, like your liver or your pancreas. Um, you wouldn't tell someone, you know, with a malfunctioning liver to just snap out of it. Uh, so it, it's always mystified me. I think you have to come to an acceptance that there is a, a physical and biochemical basis for mental illness to really get past that stigma that that we still, unfortunately, do experience. Terry, is this a, a stereotype, but that there is this sort of, I don't know if it is a myth or not, but that you know, people who are bipolar are usually also very intelligent, very, you know, extremely intelligent. And then I think of the people that I know who and friends, family who are bipolar, kind of rings true. Maybe it's just my family and friends, but is that... No, thank is there any you. Cor- yeah. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you so much for bringing that out because it is, there's a very high correlation between bipolar disorder and high intelligence and also creativity, which is something that um, is a surprising gift of, of this illness. Um, and it's one of the reasons I think uh, people often ask me, if, you were, if, you, if there was a magic pill you could take right now to get rid of your bipolar disorder, 
I don't think I take it because my creativity is so important to me and I, it has allowed me to see the world in, in sort of a, a different, more intense way than I think many people do. And that has been a, a blessing in some ways. Well, I, I, when you read the biographies of, uh, of many, as you talk about creative people, I was thinking about Van Gogh. I was at his uh, right. institution where he was. Yeah, uh, he seems to me to have been bipolar and, uh, you know, and obviously very creative, but uh, kind of goes down the line with, as you say, with a lot of these very creative people. So you don't want to give that away. I mean, you don't want to not be bipolar. No. But what are the parts? Yeah. So but the book, maybe bringing it back to that, there are things that you do have to do to mitigate some of the yes. stuff that doesn't work well, that gets you in trouble, that and and maybe talk about some of the things that the behaviors that got you in trouble bec- as a result of sure. being bipolar. Yeah. Well, I think uh, a lot of people have heard of uh, mania, and they might think that it's this wonderful, exciting, euphoric state. That's the high part of being bipolar. Um, Actually, it's not so much fun because you become very reckless. Your judgment goes out the window, and you can um, act. You can you can act in ways that you never would have acted before. For example, uh, with your sexuality or financially, I certainly did go through a period where I spent all of my money on a five star resort. I had a great time, but. Uh, I, you know, there are consequences to mania, unfortunately. And then you, after mania, you crash into depression, which I think more people are familiar with. And with bipolar disorder, there's a high incidence of suicidality and suicide attempts. Um, but that actually is not confined to bipolar disorder. Um, with depression, there is just an epidemic right now of uh, suicide. It's shocking. Another person dies by suicide in America every 40 seconds, if you can believe that. Um, so there is a definite downside, and, and one has to be very cognizant of the risks and the dangers and, and be very aware of the course of your own illness in order to treat it properly. So what would you say to many of us or most of us who are somewhat self-quarantined or the activities that help to keep us healthy uh, no longer exist? The behaviors, I guess, that we used to be able to engage in, what do we do? How do we handle that when you, yeah. You know, one of the most important things I've discovered, and I resisted this early on, but scheduling your time. Scheduling is so important to your mental health. Just having a routine, um, certainly for people with mental illness, it's reassuring. But I think it's really good advice for anyone to just have those um, thought-out activities that you're going to do each day so that you don't feel like you're so, um, you know, floating in, in the universe without any tether to the ground. Um, in these in these scary times, I think it's important to introduce some certainty into your life. So scheduling is something I highly recommend. Okay, so that that's part of of the certainty. Some the scheduling. How do right. you? 
Yeah, I mean, you're obviously you, you have done that and you do that. I mean, you're a New York Times best-selling author. You were an attorney. You were a litigator for for many years. I was an entertainment litigator for about 16 years, representing clients like Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, the major motion picture studios. So yes, I. I had an outwardly successful facade as an adult as well. And how was that in terms of your mental health or how did it, because I know you talk about, you know, lawyer versus writer, very different set of circumstances and obligations and, and actually how you spend your time. Um, so being it a lawyer, was, being yes. a little, yeah. It was so stressful, frankly, to be a lawyer. I'm much happier as a writer. Um, I didn't tell anyone about my mental illness when I was a practicing lawyer. I hid it from my friends, my coworkers. No one knew except my doctors, and I was terrified that anyone would find out. Uh, I thought I'd be fired. I thought I'd be ostracized. I'd never find love or work again. And it wasn't until I was hospitalized for a very severe depressive episode that I started to write about my own experience and and really start to own my mental illness. And I found that I was feeling better and had more clarity, and I just kept writing and writing. And seven years later, I emerged with this book called Manic, which to my astonishment, became a New York Times bestseller. So I've been writing ever since and enjoying it so much more than being a lawyer. Not making, but I, I'm making this assumption, maybe not making quite as much money as a lawyer or at least a, a lawyer for no. the celebrities. Yeah. That's, but, a, um, that's a very good assumption. <laughs> <laughs> I miss the money. I do you miss, miss yeah. the money. So let's take some of these. I, I like to get back to some of the examples of people. As you say, you wrote this book. You were surprised it was going to be a New York Times bestseller because it was because so many of us as suffer from from uh, the same kinds of uh, from your diagnoses and or ha- at least have close friends or family or colleagues who right. do the same. So there are a lot of people out there. Um, Take some of the examples uh, uh, in your book, for instance, uh, that, that you talk about and put it in that framework of, uh, I keep going back to the owner's manual, because, you know, you do write about your experiences, but actually, this is kind of more of a how-to book, which is different than many books um, about mental illness. Well, this, yeah, this book uh, combines both personal story and uh, expert research and practical ed- guidelines that I, I wouldn't say advice as much as practical lessons that I've learned from my own experience. Um, I'm not, I'm not very comfortable with giving advice because I'm not a doctor, but I do give, um, as I said, lessons. For example, I think the most important one, and it's sort of a cause of mine, is that when you're dealing with someone who's suffering from mental illness or just in general, um, try to bite your tongue when you, when you start to give that advice, it's human nature to do that. But if you just sit down with them and say five little words, tell me where it hurts, tell me where it hurts can make a tremendous difference. Um, advice tends to shut people down. It makes them feel judged. 
they feel ashamed or guilty that they can't do what you're advising them to do. But when you ask them to tell you where it hurts, it opens them up so they can express and get out some of that darkness and despair that they're feeling. And when darkness is exposed to the light, it dissipates somewhat. So I've seen this happen over and over again uh, where people really do get some relief. Who was the first person who said that to you? I actually learned that on my own because I had a boyfriend who kept trying to fix me. <laughs> I just realized well, you picked him. That, that, was, that was not helping. And it was actually making me more depressed and uh, resentful and, and ashamed. And he meant well. I know he loved me, but he felt so out of control not being able to, you know, cure me. There is no cure for bipolar disorder. There's only management of the symptoms. So that, that was how I learned about tell me where it hurts. What about you? I know you were institutionalized. What about therapy? What kinds of therapy? Can we talk about that? Um, sure. And, yeah. I, I'm a big believer in medication and therapy. I think that people who um, experience bipolar disorder, because it is a brain disorder, a chemical disorder in the way your brain functions, um, you do need to be on medication. But I think therapy is just as essential because there are consequences to mental illness. um, And there is that danger of suicide, of course. So I I think therapy, talk therapy is terrific. Group therapy, there's a lot of free online group therapy available right now. Uh, There's an organization called NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI.org, that is really geared toward family and friends of people with um, mental illness. And it helps them by offering these free support groups online or training sessions. It's a terrific organization for people who um, are struggling with someone in their family or someone they love. Because it is a family affair. I guess as a social worker, I've always seen, you know, seen it that way. I mean, if you have anyone in the family and you're living with that person particularly, it affects everyone in the family, whatever it is, whether it's a mental right. illness or any kind of an illness, actually. But... Um, so it's re- I, I would think it would be key to, to have the family involved in any kind of... Oh, it of, is so uh, important. It, it's family and friends and loved ones can make all the difference in the world. Um, I write about in Modern Madness, there was a time when I was very suicidal. And I just hap- it just so happened that friends made these little gestures of kindness in my direction, random acts of kindness, I call it. Somebody sent me flowers, for example. Somebody just sat down and talked with me, and it really steered me off that course of suicidality. It made... I I truly think that I would not be alive today if it wasn't for the love of my family and friends and their intervention in my life. I think that's so important. You mentioned the fact that, you know, 
just you know a bouquet of flowers or just a few thoughts or just sitting down and talking to you it was so key because i think that those who are on the outside sometimes feel they have to do have a monumental plan for you in order to help you to right. like we're talking about your boyfriend had to fix everything and if they can't do that then they don't do anything at all and that's really not the case oh that is so true and i i write about that also in modern madness that um really what you you just need to check in you just need to check in on the person who's struggling and a simple text or email that says, um, I'm thinking of you, this will pass eventually. You know, it reminds the person that, that they're, they're seen, they're heard, they're loved. There's a reason to go on living because you need that reminder when you're depressed. You forget that life will ever be any other way than just horrible. Um, there's something that happens in the brain that you just can't envision a better future. And I write about um, your loved ones need to sort of hold the future for you, hold, hold that hope for you uh, until you get better. What about medications? Because as you said, you know, it is a, a brain disorder, a chemical imbalance. Right. Uh, but your behavior affects your brain and and the chemicals affect your behavior, and it's a whole gestalt. What is happening? Um, I would assume that you would be aware of this, like in terms of medications and the improvements over the, you know, it, they do, the medications get more tailored to each individual. Um, how, what What is happening in that field? Yes. I think we've had a lot of improvement in medication since I started taking it. I still uh, complain about my medications because I spend a lot of money on them and I feel like I've, I've bought the right to complain about them. But um, it's very important, I think, if one can afford it or find it, to get a psychopharmacologist. That's a doctor who specializes in the psychiatric medications um, because it really is more of an art form than just a skill. Most people will get, one in five Americans is actually taking a psychiatric medication and mostly they get them from their primary care physicians who don't know as much about the medication. So to combat that, I think it's really, really essential that people stay in close contact with their doctors so that the doctors can, as we call it, tweak the medications as necessary, you know, to suit the mood because your moods are changing. Your, the, the status of your mental illness changes over time. And I think we suffer in America from what I call white coat worship, where we don't call the doctor when we need to, we're afraid we're going to be bothering him or, you know, I think doctors really need to be informed about what's going on so that they can treat you better and the medications can work better. Well, it may be a, a positive sort of outgrowth of this COVID virus because of telemedicine. You may be more apt to get in contact with a your physician uh, if you can do it online and you're not That's don't have to go right. to the office or talk to a secretary or whoever it is. So that is a, maybe another portal That's, into... Yeah. That's very true. And it's an exciting um, outgrowth, as you say, of, of COVID-19. I 
personally have been doing therapy now uh, over Zoom and by phone, and and I find that you know it's it's not quite the same as having your doctor right there with you to take you by the hand, but um, it it is helpful and it really does work. So surprisingly, I have some hope for the future because of COVID nineteen. I think that not just telehealth, but also the fact that so many people are experiencing depression and anxiety that really never felt it before in, in this intense a way. And I think that will actually raise awareness and compassion for these mental illnesses. And that's my hope in any event. And that, um, you know, we're not going to emerge from these times unchanged. And I do think that that's ground for some positive outlook. Well, sort of now, stand. you can say now you can stand inside my shoes. This is what it feels like. Um, that's um, right. Yeah, which is, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. I think that's very true. People who never have yes. experienced, yeah, depression or anxiety. Um, we only have a few minutes left. So I know you did mention NAMI, which mm-hmm. really is a, a, a very important group. Are there other groups, let's say anyone who's listening can, uh, can, can contact or... Um, you know, even uh, sure, you know, yeah. There's a for bipolar disorder. I am on the board of and highly recommend the International Bipolar Foundation. That's ibpf. dot org. Um, they're they're a great group that um, can help people who want to know more about bipolar disorder or or just feel like they belong to a community, which can be really, really helpful. Um, and in general, I think NAMI is just one of the best organizations out there. So those are, those are the two that I highly recommend. And what about your book? Where can we buy your book? I assume you're not going on, well, I'm making the assumption, book tours right now. Um, no, from, no book yeah. tours. Uh, unfortunately, but my book, Modern Madness, is available on Amazon and um, anywhere books are sold. And I have a website. Uh, it's my name, Terry Cheney, T E R R I C H E N E Y dot com, where you can get more information, or my email is on there if you want to contact me. So thank you for asking that. Well, it's been great talking to you, Day, and you have definitely in, enlightened all of us, and I do recommend the book. Not only this book, but your book, Thank Manic, you. too. You've written several books. This is not the only one, right? And you do write blog for yes. a blog? Yeah. And I have a blog for Psychology Today. It's had over a million viewers, so I, I think uh, that can be fun to read as well. Great. Thanks, Terry. Thanks, so, um, Well, thank you, Catherine. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, I enjoyed talking to you, too. Terry Cheney, Modern Madness. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 